0: Good to see everybody. As Hannah said, happy Mother's Day. Um, 692,000 hours. That's about the lifespan of an average human being. So many hours that most of us, plus or minus, are going to get uh, here on this earth. And I want you to think how is it that you want your 692,000 hours to be spent? What is it that actually matters enough for you to devote these precious hours to? What's going to allow you to look back on your life once you've hit the maybe 600,000 hour mark and feel like you've actually lived a life that's meaningful? I was struck thinking about this as I prepared for my message this week because as I studied the passage that we're going to be in this morning, I noticed that the people I was reading about, I felt like they were using their 600,000 hours really, really well. Like, I feel like they were living the kind of life that they could look back and say, yes, this, this was a good, full life. It's a life that's f- vibrant, it's full of rich relationships, deep connection with God and with people. And so I don't know about you, but I want to learn from them. I want to learn to see what they did to build this kind of life. And this summer, our church is studying the book of Acts, and... Uh, If you're a Christian, this is actually our family history that we're getting to know. Um, In this book, we're seeing the unstoppable growth of of God's church. Uh, After Jesus died, he rose again, he ascended into heaven, he sent the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit empowers the apostles, they preach the gospel, and the church is born, and it starts to grow, and it it multiplies, and uh, it overcomes all sorts of opposition. So we're kind of just in the beginning stages of looking at that story, and we're continuing to live it out here to this day. Last week I preached in Acts chapter 1, and uh, we, we saw there were really these three major things conviction, anticipation, and preparation. We saw that the, the disciples were completely convinced of the resurrection of Jesus, that he appeared to them over a period of 40 days, teaching them about the kingdom of God. They saw him many different times, they were fully convinced of his resurrection. And then they were also living with anticipation because he promised them that something big was about to happen. That He said, not many days from now, you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And so they didn't know when that was going to come. They just knew it was going to be soon. And so they spent that time, as they were anticipating that event, praying, gathering together, praying, studying the scriptures, and building their team because they knew that they had a mission to go be witnesses all throughout the earth. And so if you were with us in Life Group on Thursday, you saw that that baptism with the Holy Spirit came. Uh, They were all gathered together in one place uh, on a a Jewish holiday, Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit came and they started to preach the the gospel in all sorts of different languages. People from all around the many different regions were hearing the gospel preached in their own language. And so Peter got up and and preached a sermon, an awesome sermon that had a fantastic response. It said that 3,000 people came to faith in Jesus that day. We see that in Acts 2.41. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Man, that's an amazing event that would have, it would have been awesome to see that. But what happens now, right? So we've had this mass revival. I don't know about you guys, maybe you've been to mass revival events or like Uh, Maybe you've been to really cool concerts or uh, maybe some of you grew up going to church camp and and you're used to having these times of like spiritual high, but then you realize oftentimes as you go away from that, there isn't really a lot of life change that happens. Sometimes there is, but I've heard stories from plenty of people that have had really cool experiences, but they never actually grow into being a disciple of Jesus. They just had a profound experience, but nothing comes of it. And it could be easy to think that maybe the same kind of thing would happen here. 3,000 people at one time getting saved. So I'm interested in seeing what's going to happen next with these people. Is it just a cool event or is there something that actually changes in the way that they live? So that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. We're just going to be reading the end of Acts 2. It's only six verses I'm going to be preaching out of this morning. uh, But they're packed with with a ton of stuff uh, that we'll be able to learn from. So let's pray and then we'll dive into it. God, I thank you that we get to be with you. Lord, I, I just think of just when I was singing that song earlier about um, my heart needing a surgeon and my soul needing a friend, and God, I just thank you that you are that. God, I thank you that you're the God who created us. You're the God who loves us. You're the God who calls us into relationship with You're you the God that gives us life, and and not just physical life, but that you want us to live it abundantly. And God, I desire that too, and I believe the people here this morning do as well. So, uh, Holy Spirit, we just pray that you would come, that you would fall upon us in this room this morning. Shape us into the people that you want us to be, God. Shape this church into the church that you want it to be. It is yours And we just want to submit to you whatever you want to do in and through us. So we love you so much, God. We thank you for who you are. And we pray this in the awesome name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So, as I said, we're going to be at the end of of Acts chapter 2. So, if you have a Bible, we're going to be starting off in Acts 2.42. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's fine, because I'm going to have the text up on the screen there as well. But this is right after uh, those 3,000 people got saved at the uh, preaching of Peter. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, is going to kind of give us a, a summary statement now of the things that started to happen afterward. It says, They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching... And to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. All right so that's our text for this morning and that's our answer to what happens to these 3,000 people that just got saved at this kind of mass conversion event. They weren't just converts. They actually ended up becoming disciples there was real life change that happened. You know, verse 42 is incredibly rich. It gives us a summary statement of really what these people started to devote their lives to. And we're going to spend probably a good, at least half of our time this morning just looking at that one verse. And then we'll spend the rest of our time examining the results of what happened uh, from that, that kind of devotion, and the kind of community that it created But when we look at Acts uh, 2.42, the first thing that sticks out to me is it talks about how they were continually devoting themselves to four separate things. And and I want to just stop on that idea of devotion. The Greek word here, um, I don't pronounce Greek very well, but it's uh, untes. and uh, it communicates the idea of being steadfastly attentive to something, like giving it unceasing care. All right, so this, these kind of things that they were doing, it wasn't just like, oh yeah, they kind of dabbled in the apostles' teaching and fellowship and that. No, they, they were devoting themselves to this. They were giving steadfast, unceasing care to these kind of things. They were really serious about pursuing this stuff. They didn't treat these things as a nice add-on to their lives or an extracurricular. It wasn't a side dish. They were all in when it came to their spiritual growth and their commitment to following Jesus. And frankly, I think that that already is really convicting. I I think that their approach, honestly, to spiritual growth is very different from the approach that the average Christian in the United States has today. Most people today, at least in the United States, that call themselves Christians, I don't think are really that devoted to any of these kind of things. Showing a steadfast commitment to actually growing in the apostles' teaching and fellowship and breaking of bread and prayer. And and, you know, this community got it that Jesus wasn't calling them to a half-hearted discipleship. He wanted real devotion. Jesus actually never allows the idea of half-hearted discipleship. He calls us to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is the greatest command everything that you are. He doesn't want just part of you. You know, Jesus always set the bar actually very high for discipleship. Look at what he said in Matthew 10, 37 to 39. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Jesus takes the things that are, are most important to us, right? These relationships. Who do we love more than our mother, our father, our brother, sister, our husband, our wives? Like, like We don't, sons, daughters, we don't love anyone more than these kind of people. And, and he's saying, you know what? If your love for them is greater than me, you're actually not worthy of me. Happy Mother's Day. Um, <laughs> now, <laughs> Jesus wants you to love your mother, for sure. You should honor her, you should thank her today if you have the opportunity to do so. Um, but Jesus won't take second place, not even to your spouse, not even to your kids, not even to your parents. And I I think it seems that we're very lax in the way that we crave and pursue the teaching of the apostles and fellowship and breaking of bread and prayer when we compare it to the devotion that this early church had. Maybe we go after these things as long as we have time, along with family, school, work, sports, exercising, sleep. Recreation, self care. If I've got enough time after all those kind of things, maybe then I'll get into my Bible. And I'm not saying that any of those other things aren't important, but I am saying that all of those things are less important than your relationship with Jesus. And it can be tough to balance the many demands of life, right? I'm not even saying that this all comes down to like church attendance or something like that, right? I'm talking about something that's much deeper than church attendance. I'm talking about what your heart is actually devoted to. You you may have seasons where church attendance is legitimately hard or even impossible, right? There are fantastic Christians that have spent years and years in prison and weren't able to go to church, right? But that doesn't say anything about the devotion that their heart has to Jesus. I don't want to guilt anyone into coming to a church service or a life group or anything like that. But rather, I want your love and your hunger for Jesus to be what drives you towards soaking up the best opportunities that you have to grow closer to him. And, and that's really all we're trying to do even when we have these gatherings, right? It's like we're trying to give all of us collectively great opportunities to be able to draw near to God and to learn how to follow him better. The early church had that hunger to know Jesus and to follow him. The Holy Spirit was working in them and this led to their devotion. And we see that they were specifically devoted to four things that are listed here in verse 42. And the first one is the apostles' teaching. Now, the apostles were the 12 disciples that were with Jesus for his whole ministry. He specifically chose to spend time with them. And he gave them special tasks of being uh, people that would go out and preach. And even gave them power to drive out demons. We see this in Mark 3, 13-19. It says, And he went up on the mountain and summoned those whom he himself wanted, and they came to him, and he appointed twelve so that they would be with him, and that he could send them out to preach, and to have authority to cast out the demons. And he appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. And Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. So when it talks about the apostles' teaching, it's talking about these guys. Now, Judas was one of the 12. He betrayed Jesus and later killed himself. He was then replaced. Uh, by a guy named Matthias, who if you were with us last week, we saw the process that they used for replacing uh, Judas's spot there. Paul would also later be counted amongst the apostles. Um, But if there was anyone that knew Jesus really well, and that knew his teachings really well, it was these guys, right? Like what a treasure the early church had to be able to sit at their feet, and hear the teaching of someone that like walked with Jesus, that slept beside Jesus, that was out on the boat in storms with Jesus and saw him calm that. I mean, it would have been incredible to get to soak in the teaching of these men that were personally trained by him. You know the crazy thing, though? We can still sit at their feet today. We can still sit at their feet today. We may not have Peter or John or James that that are are there that we can sit and, and talk with and ask questions to, but we have their teachings recorded in our Bibles. Like in your pocket, everywhere you go, you have the opportunity to have the teaching of the apostles. We live in an incredible time that we actually have more access to the scripture than ever before. Like, do you realize the treasure that you have in that? You see this this kind of life that the the early church was able to live and so much of it was because they devoted themselves to teachings of the apostles and those are the same teachings that you have recorded in the scripture that you have access to at any moment you want. The whole New Testament was written by apostles or by close associates of the apostles. Man, we want to be a church that is devoted to following Jesus And it's his apostles that told us how to do that. That's why we hold the scripture in such high regard here at H2O. That's why we spend time every Sunday morning digging into his word. Every Thursday night we spend time digging into his word. Devoting ourselves, giving effort to learning it. We want to know what it says and know how to apply it in our lives. And I hope that you're doing this on your own as well. Um, Like I said, you have this treasure of being able to literally get into the scripture whenever you want to. There's nothing stopping you from opening your Bible daily and learning God's Word. And even if you don't like reading, there's lots of audio Bibles out there now that you can listen to. But it's incredible the, the ability that we have to be able to devote ourselves to the Apostles' teaching, much in the same way that the early church did. We see that something else that they devoted themselves to was fellowship. Fellowship. Now, the Greek word here is koinonia. It might be one that you're familiar with. It refers to uh, partnership or sharing. It's a devotion uh, to being partnered with each other in life for a common cause. And these early believers were bonded together tightly. It required intentional devotion to do this, to have real fellowship. I think that we all long for deep connection with other people, But oftentimes, we don't want to make the sacrifices that are necessary to have that deep connection. You know, when you really talk about having real fellowship, about sharing life with people, it requires some sacrifices. Uh, One sacrifice is your privacy, right? Like you have to be vulnerable with people if you want to actually have depth in your relationships. Confession and prayer and repentance are a big part of the Christian lifestyle, and we see that this was a part of what these communities did, that you have to be willing to sacrifice some of your privacy, some of the parts of ourselves that we want to keep secrets so that we can actually have depth with other people. Sometimes you're sacrificing your security, right? Like you can get hurt by being vulnerable with people. You don't know what people are necessarily going to do with the information that you share with them. You have to sacrifice your pride. It's really hard to have deep relationships with other people when you think that you're better than them. And I think that that is a, a thing that we have to fight against all the time. Most of us have, have a, a pride that we constantly have to, to, to fight against or a, a, judge, a, a tendency to judge others, think that we're better than them in some ways. This has to be sacrificed if you want to have real fellowship. And you know what? There's also going to be times that you're going to have to forgive. Forgive because if you want any sort of a long-lasting relationship with anyone over time, one of you is gonna let the other one down. And our pride tells us to hold on to those grudges. But real fellowship, if you want that, you want real deep relationships, you have to learn to be able to let go of that and to forgive when you're wronged. You're also gonna have to sacrifice time and energy if you want fellowship. For some, this is harder than others, Uh, but building real relationships with people takes time and energy. Right? Like You can't be surprised if you're lonely because you spend all your time in your room watching Netflix or scrolling through social media. Sometimes it takes a matter of just saying, I'm going to put myself in situations where I have the opportunity to build relationships with other people, even if I don't always feel like it. I think a fellowship is a spiritual discipline. It's something that we actually need to be intentional about. Now, for me, at least, most of the time, fellowship is fun, Right? I actually have, I have fun reading my Bible. I have fun singing worship songs most of the time. But just because something is fun a lot of time doesn't mean that you still shouldn't be intentional about it. It's wise to put yourself in situations where you are consistently going to be around people that are going to help you live more like Jesus. And this is one of the benefits of having consistent scheduled gatherings. Right? like I think fellowship can be both spontaneous and scheduled. But if, if you really want to devote yourself to it, then you're probably gonna have to have rhythms in your life that at least you're making sure that you're forcing yourself to be in spots where you're able to build deep relationships with others. That's why we meet together, one of the reasons why we meet together every Sunday and Thursday. You become like the people that you spend the most time around and that you respect the most. You know, something else that they devoted themselves to was the breaking of bread. Now, there's some debate about whether this is referring to just normal meals that they shared together, or whether this is talking about like the practice of taking communion. Um, Some would even say that it's referring to both, as they would argue, well, when Jesus gave instructions for what we call communion, it happened in the midst of a larger meal, and so they would actually kind of just do these things together all the time. I'm not gonna get into all that right now, but regardless of where you land in this debate, there's great value and importance in both kinds of breaking of bread together, right? So from the communion perspective, I'm talking about what Jesus instituted at the Last Supper, where he shows us the broken body, uh, the broken bread that represents his body, and, and the uh, poured wine that, that represents his blood. I'll read for, from Luke 22:15 to 20, where he described this. This is Jesus speaking, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. So these are instructions that Jesus gave to help us remember the way that his body was broken and his blood was poured out for us so that we could have this new covenant, this new relationship with him where our sins are forgiven. We break bread and we drink wine, or in our case on campus here, grape juice, uh, together as we remember the broken body and spilled blood of Jesus. It's a consistent reminder of the gospel And so as this early Christian community was meeting together and breaking bread together, one of the things that they were undoubtedly doing was consistently reminding each other of the gospel. The fact that that God walked among us as a man and that he died on a cross, his body was broken, his blood was poured out. Why? Because the wrath of God's sin was put upon, the, the wrath of God for sin, for your sin and my sin was put upon him. And when we, when we break bread together and when we drink the, the wine and the juice together, we're constantly reminded of that gospel message, that this is a new covenant, a, a covenant, a relationship of forgiveness that God has made with us because of the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross, that he paid for our sins so that we don't have to. Undoubtedly, this early community was consistently reminding themselves of the truth and the beauty of that gospel. But they were also sharing meals together, undoubtedly, lots of regular meals. There's no doubt that they loved to eat together a lot. Uh, Even just a few verses later in in verse 46, it says, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. So this simple act of them just eating together, this was actually a big part of the life of the early church. And I think it contributed to how vibrant this community was. Because think of all the things that they got to do as they were eating together. One thing they got to do was take care of each other, right? Some may not have even had enough means to to buy their own food, but this was one of the ways that they got to be able to share and bless one another. They also got to celebrate with each other. Like, there's a reason that most Christians practice praying before their meals. Why? Every time that we eat a meal, we get the opportunity to remember that this is God who's actually provided this for us. We get to celebrate the good gift that we're partaking in together. And really, just eating together builds relationships. Uh, it's just—it's—it's it's, Eating is almost one of those times, really in our culture, even one of the few times we have where we slow down a little bit um, and have the time just to be able to talk with the people that are around us. You get to know each other. You share life together. And that plays into the idea of fellowship that we were just talking about. And finally, we see the fourth thing that they devoted themselves to was Prayer. As we go through Acts, you're going to see that the early church prayed together a lot, right? They prayed together a lot. They were desperate for God to move. Remember their situation. Like most of these people are new converts uh, to Christianity. They're still learning how to follow Jesus. And they need him to shape them into the people he wants them to be. They have this mission to take the gospel all the way to the ends of the earth. How are they going to do that aside from the power of God? And not only that, but they have this mission to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. You'll find that they're consistently running up against opposition in this mission too. Once again, how are they going to overcome that except by the power of God? They understood their need for him and prayed together a lot. And frankly, I think they also saw the opportunity that they had in prayer. I think we almost take it for granted sometimes that we can pray, right? Like that we have a direct line where we can go into the throne room of God Almighty and speak to him. That, that's an incredible thing. I mean, I don't have that kind of access to the mayor of Cincinnati. <laughs> but I have a direct line of communication with God Almighty? I mean, what, what an unbelievably amazing privilege we have. And man, like, isn't it one that we should be taking advantage of? I think the early church saw that and understood that. They, they realized, man, remember, even for these early Christians, most of them were coming from a Jewish background, and, and in, the, in Judaism, you know, you, you have a, a priest that's, that's acting as an intermediary between you and God. He's the one that goes in and makes the sacrifices for you and sprinkles the blood in the temple and this kind of stuff, but now, the, the new covenant, we see Jesus is our high priest, and we see later when Paul would write to Timothy, he says, there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, You know, in in Hebrews 4, uh, the the author of Hebrews talks about Jesus being our high priest that allows us to come and approach the throne of grace with confidence. That veil that was torn in the temple that separated the most holy place from the rest of the temple, realizing, hey, you have this this new kind of access to me that's really special. And I think the early church took full advantage of that. And so what kind of life did this build, this devotion to these four things. The apostles teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, and to prayer. Some pretty cool stuff. One thing we saw that it resulted in was awe. Verse 43 tells us, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. These people knew that they were a part of something big, and there was evidence for it all around. They were seeing signs and wonders taking, hand, uh, taking place at the hands of the apostles. Now, I believe that God still works miracles today. I absolutely believe that he does. There's lots of testimony about that happening. Um, but it seems like even in, in this age, especially with the apostles, they were happening relatively consistently. And it, spe- it specifies that they happened at the hands of the apostles. And, and my personal take on why I think that was happening, it's a high rate there is that, remember, these are the guys that were bringing the teachings of the new covenant. God needed to do something to establish their authority as the teachers that, that should be listened to. Uh, you'd see God actually do the same thing with Moses, who was kind of the one that he used to deliver the old covenant law, right? Moses comes and he has all this law, well, why should we listen to you? Well, God confirmed why we should listen to him because he's the guy that he used to bring the 10 plagues on Egypt. He's the guy that he used to part the Red Sea. He's the guy that he used to to bring water forth from a rock. So as God was working miraculously through him, it was confirming, yes, he's actually speaking the truth of what I have to say to you. And so I think the consistency of these miracles that were happening with the apostles were part of God confirming, yes, these are the people you should be teaching uh, to help you understand what the new covenant is and how to live in this, this life. You know, regardless of whatever miracles you may or may not get to see, it, it must have been awe-inspiring to just be a part of this community. Because even if you weren't seeing blind people gain their sight or lame people walk, like you were seeing lives get radically transformed. And, and we see that Because of the family that formed here, that's really the next result that I'm going to talk about, their devotion to these things turned them into a family. And this makes sense because part of the teaching that, that that the apostles give us is that we actually become a family, right? The apostle John, what did he say? John 1, 12 to 13, but as many as received him, talking about Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God even to those who believe in his name, who are born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You know, Jesus also speaks about this idea that his followers are a legitimate family. There was a time where in Matthew 12, I'll I'll just read it for you. His mom and brothers are coming. It says, while he was still speaking to the crowd, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. Someone said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. We see that, that God really does bring us together into a family as his people. The church is not just an organization or a social club or something like that. It's, it's a family that is bonded together. You are, when you become a Christian, you're actually reborn, right? Like, that, that's one of the things the Bible uses to talk about us becoming Christians is, is being born again. And as you're born again, you're born into a new family. You're in, in the family of God. And we see that these people really did treat each other like family. They shared everything together, both their possessions and their lives. You see in verses 44 and 45, it says, And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. This is an incredible kind of generosity that I typically see only in healthy, like, blood families. Okay? Like, my parents and my brothers are willing to share with me whatever I need. I don't think there's ever a time that I've ever asked them for something that I needed and they said no. I've borrowed their trucks and their tools and, and their time and, and I have access to their homes and, you know, all these kind of things, right? We we, we just share it almost commonly. Like, yes, I have my house, they have their house, but it, it's almost like it's collectively belongs to our, our family. It's just we, we realize we all have access to each other's stuff as we need it. And, and that really seems to me a lot like how this church was functioning here. I hope that we can live in a, a similar way with each other. You know, you, you have to realize e- even Jesus told us you, you can't be his disciple unless you give up all of your own possessions. Well, what does that mean, right? Because we, we still see there are people that have private property that are following Jesus. Sometimes they sell it, as we saw here. Doesn't It's not necessarily that every single person sold their property right away and they all just turned into a big bank. That When you look at the Greek there, it's actually Um, implies this idea of like a continuing process. So as needs would arise, sometimes people would sell the stuff that they had and they would use that money uh, to help meet whatever need it was that came up. But you have to understand, whatever possession it is that you own, like God actually owns that. You are just a steward of that. And and so he's given you the responsibility to steward that possession well. Uh, When Cass and I got married almost 10 years ago now, um, we bought our house, and uh, we made sure to never remove the little realtor key box thing that was on it, um, because we wanted our house to be open to to you guys, like to, to whoever needed to be in there. Um, I remember, yeah, when, when this church was getting started, people used to be I mean there's still people over at my house all the time, but especially every Sunday people were over there sometimes i would would come home and there'd be people in my house and i would I had been out somewhere else and they'd just let themselves in like it, it's this this reality of it's not really my house it's it's the lord's house, and he's entrusted my wife and I to steward that in a way that that blesses his people we've had probably 20 different people live with us for, for different periods of time, some long, some short, but as there's been need, we're saying, hey, what do we have that's able to, to bless our family here? Um, man, it, it, this, this is how the Christian community should work to, together as families. It's just like, everyone's kind of just sharing everything they have. What, a, what an incredible, like, that's, that's cool to be a part of a community like that. Like, think of all the different ways that, that we can help each other if we actually lived with that kind of open-handedness and and that desire to share and help each other the way that this early church did. But you know, not only did they share their possessions, but they shared their lives. We see Acts 2.46, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together. They did normal life stuff together. You see, for them, the idea of church was not just I see you for an hour on Sunday mornings. No, right? Like this was like a daily kind of connection that they had with each other. We see that it was in the temple, right? So the, the religious place or whatever, they're maybe doing their worship. They're going, yes, they're coming to temple together. It's kind of like us coming to Probasco Auditorium together. But, but they're also in their homes together. From house to house. They're taking their meals together. You see this idea of just, they're sharing the everyday normal stuff of life with each other. And you know, this is um, one of the things, honestly, that I I love about this church and that I love about the the college lifestyle in general is I think it lends itself a little bit more towards this, Uh, but I think as Christians, we need to be people that really desire to share life with each other and are, are intentional about trying to make sure that we see each other in All sorts of normal contexts. Like, yes, I'm glad we get to see each other on Sundays. I get to see some of you that are in my life group on Thursdays. All of you this summer are in my life group on Thursdays. Um, But also just like normal stuff. Like, that's why we do things like Frisbee on Monday night, you know, or um, whatever. You you go to the movies or play volleyball together or play board games or, or chill in hammocks or whatever. Just like sharing life together. This is what the early church was doing. And it's such a blessing to get to live life this way with each other which results in joy. That was one of the other things that you can clearly see that this community had. It says that as they were taking their meals together, it was with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God. When you live this way, you live thankful, right? Like this community was constantly thankful, praising God, having gladness. Why? Because their minds were saturated with the gospel. What what was the teaching that they were devoting themselves to? The apostles' teaching. As you you fill your mind with that, what's going to happen? It's going to result in gladness, sincerity of heart, and praising of God. You know, the the apostle Paul in Philippians 4.4, he said, Rejoice in the Lord always again, I will say rejoice. He wrote that in a prison cell, by the way. Um, but but just this idea of like, man, as you understand the greatness of who God is and the kind of relationship he's called you into, of course you're going to be able to start to live with gladness and thankfulness and praise. You know, it's not just that we're told to do this, as he literally commands us to rejoice there, but we have every reason to. We've been given eternal life and we are heirs to the kingdom of God. So often we let our minds be filled with with much lesser things. We let our minds and our emotions be controlled by our circumstances or the way we think the world's not going, how we want it to, or something like that. Rather than devoting ourselves to what God says, which I think will give us a totally different kind of demeanor. It's going to help you to be full of gladness and praise. That phrase, sincerity of heart, it's, it's a difficult one to translate because it's actually a very rare word. Um, The word translated for sincerity there, it's actually the only time that it's used in the whole New Testament. Um, The the King James Version translates it singleness of heart, and I'm not a Greek scholar, so I can't tell you what the best translation is, Um, but we can see that these Christians are certainly sincere in their love for Jesus, and this led to a kind of singleness of heart for them. Their heart was singularly devoted to Jesus he got all their worship. And you see, when you're focused on the right stuff, it's a lot easier to have joy. When our hearts are captured by all sorts of other things, the pursuits of those things can be really frustrating, and they can rob us of our joy. We don't get the job we want. We don't get a date with the girl or guy that we want. We don't get the recognition for our accomplishments that we think we deserve. All this stuff can be really frustrating. It can steal our joy, but when your heart is singularly focused on Jesus and you have him, and he's, he's, he's given himself to us, you're able to have joy and gladness. And you know one other thing I'll say that this devotion resulted in was honor. It says that they were praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. The life that they were living was not only a blessing to them, but it was a blessing to the people that were around them. So much so that they had favor with all the people. Right? Like when the church is operating as it should, it should be a blessing to the community that it's in. Think of how Jesus blessed every town that he walked through right? Like, think of how he, he healed the people that, that were, were sick there, and, and that the, he would feed them both spiritually, sometimes even physically, right? Multiplying loaves and fish. Joyful, thankful people bless their communities. They lift the spirits of people that are around them. I, you know, if, if you go to your job and you have a joyful, thankful attitude, a heart that's filled with gladness because you're devoting yourself to these kind of things, you'll be a blessing to the people at your workplace. Far more so than if you go in grumbling, which is what the average person does. I remember uh, I I play a lot of intramurals on campus, and uh, one time there was an intramural ref that was asking me about H2O, and he's like, yeah, I mean, I want to like I'm kind of interested in you guys because, like, like, I see the way that you guys, like, love each other and have fun with each other. And it's like, he's like, yes, that, that's, that's it, right? He wasn't a part of our community. He never actually ended up coming around. But even he was able to see that there was something that was going on that, that he saw as being a positive thing. And, and this community, as it loved each other and, and they took care of each other and they shared with each other, They blessed not only each other, but they they ended up being a blessing to the the community that they were in. Generous people blessed their communities. Joyful people blessed their communities. The generosity of these people, they had a crazy level of sharing and generosity that was going on amongst each other. But they almost certainly did some things that were were caring for those that were outside of their community as well. The church has historically done this a ton. Right? Like, Like there's a lot of things now that we even think of, like, the government doing. But so much of that stuff was started by Christians, uh, like hospitals, for example. <laughs> think of the names of these hospitals around here. Christ Hospital, Good Samaritan Hospital. Who do you think is, is involved in doing this? Christians were some of the first people to start doing stuff like that, to, to set up things that were going to help people that were sick. Um, homeless shelters, right? Like, who's running these things city gospel mission it's, it's probably the best homeless shelter in our city christians are the ones that are they're taking care of these people that are trying to help them get out of the situation that they're in including all sorts of soup kitchens and stuff like that that have been started like job services there's an awesome um, thing called city link that tries to help people get all the different things that they need to be able to get into employment it's like that's started by christians Educational services, right? Like, we know that education opens up big opportunities in life. Christians have done all sorts of things to help people with that. I think of our partners at Wesley Chapel, or um, a thing my parents do through their church called Wiz Kids, where they're trying to help these, these kids learn and be tutored so that they can have uh, good opportunities in, in life. Um, I think of, like, just children's programs that help get people out of bad situations. Our friends at Wesley Chapel and the Lord's Gym have stuff like that going on. Um, crisis pregnancy services. I think of our friends over at Life Forward that are Christians. Uh, there are moms that are getting to celebrate Mother's Day today with their children because there were Christians that loved them enough to give them the support they needed to choose not to abort their baby. How awesome, like is, what a gift that is, right? Like, like there, are, there are mothers that their lives are, are, are totally changed for the better because someone cared about them enough to walk alongside them and help them make the right decision, even though it was difficult. Adoption and foster care. I mean, Christians have been at the heart of this for a long, long time, right? Like our government actually does a comparatively good job with this compared to a lot around the world. Um, But once again, even before the governments got involved, it was Christians that were at the tip of the spear for this stuff taking care of people that that were orphaned. And you know, even in a lot of parts of the world, it's still Christians that are absolutely shouldering the major burden of this. I spent a summer with a a church we're partnered with down in in Honduras, and they run an orphanage down there. It's awesome work they're doing. The the church is able to, to be such a blessing to the community that it's in when it devotes itself to the things that are important. And man, may, may the church be known for our love of God and our love of people. Those are the things that should mark our lives. There may still be people that come to hate us and persecute us and reject us. And you're going to see that even as awesome as this church clearly was, they ran into plenty of that. Like, like, so it says here that they were having favor with all the people. So undoubtedly there were people that were even outside of their community that saw that what they were doing and celebrated it. But there were detractors too, and we'll get to them. You know, we, we don't control that, but what we can do is continue even to love those who treat us as enemies. And if we did that, we would be following exactly in the footsteps of our King Jesus, who prayed for the people that were crucifying him. So when you put all of this together, you see that God was honored well, and that people came to know him in droves, right? Day by day, the Lord was adding to their number, those who are being saved. I don't know about you, but w- when I started this sermon, you know, I-, I talked about, man, 692,000 hours, that's what, you- that's what you probably get. Some maybe more, some maybe less. How do you want to spend those? When I look at the lives of these people, the way they were living, that sounds like the good life to me. Sounds like the good life to me far more so than living in mansions or owning a yacht or Um, just living in in comfort or whatever. What they were doing mattered. Seems valuable, joyful, more meaningful than all the vain pursuits of the world. Living in the midst of this vibrant community that's truly devoted to Jesus sounds amazing to me. And I want my plus or minus 692,000 hours to be spent in that way. I want the awe of being a part of the work of God. I want the family that he gives me as a believer. I want the joy that comes with following him. I want the the honor that that comes from, from living a life that's pleasing to him. And I want people to know Jesus around me. But those things don't come without the devotion. Remember that it started with their devotion to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, and to prayer. May we be a community that knows, loves, and applies God's word as we devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching. Come on Sundays. Come on Thursdays. Come to the classes, if you can, that, that we're going to be doing. But read the Bible on your own. If you don't know how to do that, ask someone who does. If you don't know who to ask, come talk to me. I won't. I'm not scary. I'm happy to help you um, learn, learn how to, to read the Bible. <clears throat> You know, may we be a community that is committed to knowing each other and investing in each other. Again, like put yourself in a position to know and be known. It's not going to happen if you just stay isolated. Reach out to someone. Have one-on-one time. Get to know someone. Send a text. Hey, I'd like to get lunch with you sometime. Get to know you a little bit better. Share a meal. Break bread together. Right. Serve with someone. That's, that can actually be a great thing that builds fellowship too, is just being able to serve together. Uh, I talked about our partners at the Lord's Gym. Every, uh, once a month, we go down there and we just serve pancakes to people that are in need. Like, that might be a great fellowship building opportunity, even with the people you get to serve with. You know, May we be a community that shares meals together and remembers Jesus. You know, After the sermon here, during our second worship set, we're gonna take communion together. And I, I read fr- from the text for you what that is, uh, if you are a christian you 're part of this uh, family of God. you believe that jesus uh, his body was broken for you, that his blood was poured out for you, that he rose from the dead, and if you can put your faith in him, you have salvation. If you believe that, then you are welcome to partake in that. We share that together and remember that gospel that saves us amen let 's also just be people that in, in have meals, regular meals with each other, get to know each other more that's part that 's why we do the summer life group meals before uh, before a life group on Thursdays, right? Come, hang out. Invite your friends to come break bread with us. And man, may we be a community that prays together. We have uh, daily corporate prayer times, or at least I think during the weekdays, that are gonna be happening over this summer. Um, I don't know if the info has already been sent out on that or if it will be sent out soon, Uh, but there's going to be more opportunities for times of corporate prayer. This is something that I actually really want our church uh, to be growing in, and uh, I actually want to grow in just doing that even right now as as I close my sermon. Uh, Band, you guys can come back up here, and uh, I'm just going to lead us in a time of corporate prayer. Uh, There's a, a slide there. There's really 10 things um, I don't know that I'll necessarily pray individually through through each one, I may see where the Spirit leads, um, but I want us together as a church to be crying out to God and asking Him to work, and th- these are really 10 things we talked about this morning. Um, so I'm going to pray. I may give some time that where I just pause for a little bit and let you choose what, what it is that you think that you really need to ask God for help in, in any of these areas, but uh, l- l- let's pray together. God, uh, we thank you that you love us and that you call us to be devoted to you. Lord, as a church, my prayer is that, yeah, we would be steadfastly committed uh, the way that this early church is to, to these, these simple things. The teaching of the apostles. God, help us to be a people that that really value your word, that crave it, that know it, that memorize it, that meditate on it. Lord, help us to uh, be people that that just hunger for, that are thankful for your word, that submit to it. God, uh, help us to change our lives in accordance with what you say. That's one of the hardest things about Bible study. It's not always the understanding. It's the response Lord I think of uh, at, at Pentecost when, when Peter preached your word it says they were pierced to the heart and he said what should we do Lord I know that, that sometimes I open up my Bible and uh, there's times that I'm pierced to the heart And God, I just pray that for our church, Lord, that as we open up your word, whether it's together here on Sundays or together here on Thursdays or in our own time with you, uh, that that when you pierce our heart, that that would be our response. You say, what should we do? And that we respond accordingly. God, I thank you that you form us into a family. We get to have real fellowship with you and and with each other. God, I I pray even right now that you would break down walls that are, are stopping us from experiencing the kind of fellowship that you want us to experience with each other. Lord, if there's grudges that are being held, if there's... Pride in our hearts that's causing us to judge, if there's fear or insecurity that's stopping us from really going deep with people, I just pray, Lord, that, that even right now you would help us to let go of those things. about the the way the church broke bread together, Lord. And um, I thank you for the communion that we're about to partake in here together. Uh, And and Lord, I thank you for just your your provision. We live in such an incredibly materially blessed society. I I thank you, Lord, that that food is so easy to come by here and that we're able to share it with each other. Um, God, help us to be generous with the means that you've given us and that we'd share our food with each other. Share life with each other over meals God thank you that we get to to come and and pray to you and that you hear us Jesus we thank you that you're our high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses as you were tempted in every way yet without sin so let us approach the throne of grace boldly with confidence find help in time of need. God, I thank you that we come before you. Make us a church that uh, just realizes more and more our need for you and realizes more and more the opportunity that we have in communicating with you. Lord, we thank you for the the wonder of who you are, the the works that you've done, Lord. uh, We we believe that you still work in power today, Lord, and, and maybe there's someone that even needs a a miracle God you know I I, I praise you for the healings that you've done I I think of my my friend whose mom just recently was was healed of cancer Um, God I I thank you for that God I pray that uh, you would hear the prayers of those that, that are in need of a sign or a wonder to happen in their lives Thank you for the way you bond us together, Lord. Help us to be people that, that share everything that we have with each other, that live open-handed, that are generous, that, that live with more of a steward mentality than an owner mentality. And God, help us to experience the joy of, of knowing you and of being like single-minded in our devotion to you. Having that, that sincerity of heart, that singleness of heart, God, uh, just thank you for the joy that comes with being devoted to the important stuff. And, and Lord, if there's lesser things that are crowding out our connection with you, I pray that you'd help us to see what they are and to let go of them. God, that we wouldn't be the, the soil number three that's... Um, full of weeds and choked out, the fruitfulness is choked out because of all these other cares in the world. God, help us learn how to, to take care of our responsibilities and, and to live in this world as, as we have a responsibility to, to, to go to work and to go to school and to make the money that we need and that kind of stuff. But uh, Lord, Lord, help us know how to do that in the context of always having you first. And even as we go into all of these spaces, God, I pray that you'd help us to, to know that you're sending us as missionaries into those spots. To know that you're walking into class with us. You're walking into work with us. That even as we go to those things, we know that we're a Christian first before we're an employee or a student or anything else. Lord, we pray that our church, H2O, would, would be known as a blessing to its community. God, I pray that the the people on UC's campus and in the city of Cincinnati, even if they're not part of this church or they they don't know us, Lord, that, that they would be able to at least be thankful for the work that's being done as they see the way that we love each other and love the community around us. Give us favor with all the people. God, I pray that for your church as a whole, not just for H. God, but, but just for your church, God. I, I feel like there's been such a damaging of reputation and, uh, over the years, but uh, ultimately, God, I know that, that your, your true church has been salt and light. And God, we pray for the church as a whole that, that you would help us to bless the places that we are and to have favor amongst all the people. And ultimately, God, we pray that in the midst of all of this, that many would come to know you. Day by day, Lord, add to those that are being saved. We pray that you would do that here. God, it's true that there would be uh, consistently more and more people that come to know you. God, we we thank you for the way you've already done that. God, that we've gotten to celebrate many people walking from death to life over this past year. That that there's a lot of people that we've seen get baptized. And God, we just pray for, for more of that that you would move and that you would work and that that people would continually be drawn to you. I pray that you would break down barriers that are stopping people from coming into relationship with you. We love you so much, God. I thank you that you hear our prayers and we lift all of them up to you in the awesome and mighty name of your son, Jesus. Amen.